Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello again and welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Another week is in the books and uh, I guess perhaps I can start this program off by saying it was a more traditional week than we've been having, even though it was a week of a lot of interesting things happening. And to discuss not only those things that happened this week, but what they are going to lead to for the next three months, six months, year, and uh, even the next four years, we have invited back a friend of ours who, who uh, for us, always puts these things into perspective in a way that is unique. And his name is John Hood. And John is the president of the John William Pope Foundation and uh, is a, has been a frequent pro- a guest on this program for years and years and years. Um, John, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Don, for having me back. Well, I think, you know, in a way, this week was one of the more uh, uh, traditional weeks we've had in the last, I don't know, eight weeks, nine weeks. There wasn't anything truly unusual that happened that uh, wasn't anticipated. Was that a surprise to you? Um, not really. I sort of figured that uh, I didn't think that the fear of some kind of unrest or a terrorist incident or something like that was was out of the was out of the realm of possibility. I think that it was something that the public authorities in Washington and around the country needed to take seriously. But I always thought that, and this is true of, of extremists of all sorts, that they thrive on unpreparedness, you know, on the part of authorities. And when you're prepared for them, it becomes a lot less attractive to try to do something. So I, I really wasn't surprised that there was no horrible incident. I'm, of course, we're all glad that happened, but I also wasn't surprised. I was struck, Don, by the by the sequence of three Thursdays. If you look at the headlines of newspapers or the lead-off of newscasts, uh, the first Thursday in January, it was about a mob attacking the capital of our country. And the second Thursday morning, the newscast, the, the headlines were President Trump impeached again. And then this third Thursday was about you know new president inaugurated and in, and you're right in some ways the third headline was the least interesting uh, it was it was already baked into cake shortly after November uh, election day it was obvious that Biden was going to be the president and so it was less uh, l- less overwhelming as an event than the first two and so in a in a way quote more normal uh, I do think there were some things that stood out on Inauguration Day and in the president's speech, President Biden's speech, uh, and some other presentations and musical acts and so forth that happened, which was a kind of a return to normalcy message. That phrase comes out of uh, 1920, which, Don, I know you remember vividly the presidential election of 1920 when, uh, when, <laughs> when Warren Harding uh, was elected. And part of the message there was we've been through a war, we've been through all this turmoil, and we're going to try to get things back to some level of normal activity. And that really was part of Biden's message, as was the idea we can argue passionately for our points of view and disagree a lot. And that doesn't make us enemies, it just makes us rivals. Uh, and I can't remember the exact turn of phrase, but essentially said not every disagreement uh, is like a war. And I think that is an cr- incredibly important message for people across the political spectrum to internalize and take seriously. Uh, no one is saying, when, when President Biden talked about unity, 
he actually specifically explained he doesn't mean everybody's going to agree. He doesn't mean unity as in shut up and do what I say because we should be unified. He means we should be united in the essentials, in the basics of living under America's uh, former government, American society, about mutual respect and individual rights and the democratic process and things like that, even though we know we're not going to be united on what to do about Medicare or what to do about transportation or what to do about COVID-19. And so I thought that was a good message. And I think some of the other choices they made in the way they presented the inauguration, even the musical acts and so forth, I thought all reinforced that message. I thought that was a good message for Biden, just as a political matter, but it was also a good message for Americans. Well, it, uh, you know, the feeling I got watching it was that probably Biden is the best choice we could have to try to put things back together because he's always had a, uh, a tendency to want to work across the aisle and build uh, constituencies uh, and has, uh, has a record of doing that. And, and that may be exactly what we need these days. Uh, as, as you said, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with disagreement. Uh, it's a matter of how we voice that disagreement and how we move forward. Well, um, so, uh, if you are president Biden right now and he's in what his second, well, you know, we're recording this program on Friday. So he's now in his second or third day of actually uh, being in charge, although he's been prepared. What do you think his first 30 days are going to look like? Now, we, we know what his first five or six days were, but what do you think his uh, first month is going to look like and, and uh, how will he go about uh, trying to build these fences and, uh, uh, or tearing down these fences and building up, uh, uh, and I'm not talking about the fence in Mexico, uh, uh, the fences between the parties and trying to reconcile? Um, I, th I think you can think about this first period of Biden's administration in three ways. One of them is COVID, COVID, COVID. I mean, that's the, that's the primary issue that people are interested in. The vaccination uh, pace is disappointing and inadequate. In fact, even President Biden's uh, announced goal of 100 million inoculations in 100 days actually is about the same thing the Trump people were doing at the end. That's not a very ambitious goal, but I hope is that that's an example of a politician setting a hurdle really low so you can hurl over it because uh, we really need to be more like 2 million inoculations a day, not 1 million. Um, but anyway, so, so I think a lot of this will be about COVID, about the, the vaccination process and the other aspects of COVID recovery. And I think that will be very public. And I think it will be probably what much of the public is interested in. What do you take? What do you make of his uh, seemingly lack of interest in the impeachment? Uh, uh, you know, we well, that was my second point, Don. Oh, okay. We've also got the impeachment drama. Uh, I think in that case, Biden understands that the impeachment drama is not going to be part of his sort of return to normalcy approach. It's inconsistent with it. It's it might be you know you can think it's a good idea, but it clearly is not going to unify the country. But I also think Biden recognizes he can't do anything to stop it. I mean, basically, the president has been impeached. That impeachment will be sent to the Senate. The Senate has to hold a trial. This is not really an option. So I think that in many ways, uh, the minority leader now, Mitch McConnell's floating of the idea of doing the trial in, a, in about a month, 
allowing both sides to prepare for it. I think actually Biden probably prefers that to deferring it further out. You got to get it done. One way or the other, you got to go ahead and get it done and get it out the door. I don't think that he believes that the um, uh, the impeachment trial is going to do anything but exacerbate differences of opinion about Trump. Of course it will. That's the nature of this political process. It's not a criminal trial. It's not, you know, people aren't sober and careful and looking closely at the evidence and all that. It's a political process and it'll play out. But the third theme I think is arguably the most important in the long run, but the least likely to get a lot of attention, which is that Biden is staffing the federal government. He's staffing his White House, still continuing to do that. He's going to be getting his cabinet secretary submitted and approved. The more important, or not more important, the, the, the significant but less noticeable thing is the seconds and thirds and fourth level jobs in these administrations, which uh, all administrations try to staff. The Trump administration was rather slow. Some of the jobs they never actually staffed, at least not with permanent employees. And so Biden, as an experienced person in government, both as a vice president and a longtime senator, he's going to be focused a lot on the, the sort of nuts and bolts of taking control of the federal bureaucracy and making it work for him and for the Democrats. Republicans aren't going to like that at all. It's just the way it is. But it's a big part of what Biden's team is doing. Of course, the economy and the COVID-19 situation go hand in glove. Uh, if the COVID-19 situation and the inoculations uh, continue and uh, uh, we, we reach a point where we feel like uh, at least 50% uh, perhaps of the uh, most uh, of, of the citizenry is vaccinated, uh, we could see a rebound in the economy uh, uh, as early as maybe April or May. And of course, that would be a breath of sunshine to uh, to America. It would. Uh, some think that that recovery will happen in the spring because even though you don't get to a critical mass yet, you're going to be inoculating, you're going to be protecting lots of elderly people who are the most vulnerable to the virus, which means that you know a broad section of Americans might start getting out more and doing things. Others argue it's really going to be more like the midsummer before people are comfortable enough to start doing this. I don't really know the answer to that question. I tend to think early rather than later. It's noticeable that we have a much worse problem with COVID now than we had back in the spring. Uh, we had a huge debate about and a huge imposition of a lockdown in the spring. Really hasn't been an attempt to truly impose a lockdown. And that's because people know that it's just not practical. You, you, you can never shut down our economy like that for more than a few weeks, a couple of months. Unfortunately, we already spent that capital in the spring. I, I, I had always thought, I'd always argued, you know, it might be worse later and we need to kind of keep our powder dry, but that's not what the public officials decided to do. They, they were arguing for this crush the, the curve, flatten the curve approach. Maybe that helps some, but here we are now in a situation where we have thousands of people dying of this dread disease every day in America. Um, and we're just going to have to muddle our way through until enough uh, immunizations occur that you'll have something like herd immunity, meaning not just that vulnerable people won't get it, but that even non-vulnerable, even fairly healthy people won't be spreading it. Our guest is John Hood, and we're going to be talking about uh, the first quarter of the United States government, and uh, also we'll get turn to North Carolina politics and see how the events of uh, the last 30 days are going to affect what's happening in North Carolina. And we will do that when we return with 
the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities. He's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right, they can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with our guest, John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, a frequent guest on our program and uh, an author. Or John, I, before I forget, are you working on any books right now? I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring called Mountain Folk. It is a novel set during the American Revolution. Uh, happens primarily in the Carolinas, Tennessee, Virginia, and a little bit in Pennsylvania. Uh, so it has uh, George Washington in it and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Daniel Boone is a major character in the novel. But I'll have to tell you, Don, it is a historical fantasy novel. So in addition to historical characters like the ones I just mentioned, there are also two-foot-high fairies and a giant fire-breathing salamander. Just, just It's that kind of book. You, you, you're familiar, of course, with that kind of book where you have – Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton debating, you know, the proper role of the federal government in banking. And you also have uh, a giant uh, monster cat ravaging the, the countryside and only Daniel Boone and his fairy friends can stop it. Sounds, that sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. You know, this gives me a good opportunity to put in a plug for my uh, hometown area of the Bessemer City, Kings Mountain area. The Kings Mountain National Military Park is a fascinating place and one of the most under-visited uh, places. They've done a really good job of having a good, uh, it's a good half-day uh, trip up there. If you uh, are going to Atlanta uh, on I-85, it's right off I-85 on the North Carolina-South Carolina border, but they have a great uh, uh, museum there now. And uh, But the reason I bring it up is... Uh, so much of what happened in the uh, Revolutionary War uh, was changed by the volunteers that came from the mountains of North Carolina down to Kings Mountain to battle. And in fact, people often call that in that area the turning point of the revolution. Well, Don, I was actually at Kings Mountain National uh, Military Battlefield last week and, and toured it again, took some pictures because uh, the, the Battle of Kings Mountain and the Trek of the Over Mountain Men 
across the uh, mountains from Tennessee and Virginia and North Carolina and down to King. That's a big part of my book. That's that's a that's one of the climactic chapters of the book is the Battle of Kings Mountain. And Isaac Shelby, who was one of the commanders of the Americans, he's one of the main characters in my novel. Interesting. Well, I you know I didn't know that when I brought that up. I'm proud of you. But it, it, they've done a really good job with that park. It's a, it's a great, it's a national military park, which is different than a national park. Yes, yeah. and it's and it's fascinating. As is Crowder Mountain nearby, so yes. people should make it a nice day trip. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get back to talking about uh, more current things, and uh, I'd like to turn right now to your opinion because John, of course, uh, you are uh, uh, known as a conservative, um, and uh, your politics are conservative. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some statements that I've hear over and over and over and get your views on it. One of them is that 70 million people voted, or approximately 70 million people voted for President Trump. Now, I've got a sort of a different take on that, that 70 million people voted for conservative issues and President Trump. What percentage do you think of those 70 million people were actually in favor of President Trump, or or was it the issues he supported? Well, it was, I think the number is really more like 74 million, 75 million, something like that. But it's a it's yeah. a large number. Of course, Biden got 81 million, so it's important to keep in mind. Turnout was 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 high across the board. Uh, a lot of the Republican vote for Trump was for Trump. Uh, there is a base of of people in, within the Republican Party who don't just actively dislike Trump's enemies or like his policies, but not his behavior. There is a substantial percentage. I think the latest I looked at it, maybe 15 to 20% of the American public as a whole are really Trump fans. They're, they're, they're not just operationally on his team or against the Democrats. They really like him. But that means there are lots of Republican voters who really weren't voting for Trump the man. They were either voting against Biden and the Democrats being in charge of the White House for all the obvious reasons conservatives would dislike that, or they were voting for some of Trump's policies that they liked, reducing taxes, deregulation, that sort of thing, but not really about his own brand of politics, his own behavior, or maybe even some of his deviations from traditional Republican views on things like immigration and trade. What is the, where, where is his future? What, yeah, we're, first of all, were you surprised about his last two weeks in office? Uh, I thought he would go out, you know, to part, I, I will, you'll have to pardon me folks. If, if you are Trump fans, I'm going to have to tell you the way I see it. I always knew he was going to go out clumsy and nasty, but I didn't think it would be as bad as it turned out to be. And I didn't of course anticipate that some of his followers would march down to the Capitol and actually bust in the door and, and cause all the damage and destruction they did. I thought that would mostly peter out. Uh, I didn't fully appreciate uh, how dangerous that rally was and, the, and him whipping of, up to a frenzy. So many people who really think, and I've talked to him, I have, have exchanges with him all the time. Some people really think the election was stolen by some large scale international level conspiracy that involves uh, companies and foreign governments and Republicans like the governor of Georgia. <laughs> and this is just sort of elaborate conspiracy theories. It's all poppycock and nonsense, but people believe it. And if you believed that the president of the United States had been defeated, not by the voters, but by an elaborate international conspiracy, if you truly believed that it would be the greatest crime in American 
political history, and you might be motivated to take some radical action. Um, so I hold everybody responsible for this, and most importantly, the people who did it, but also the people who lied to them and whipped them into a frenzy. John, what if 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 indeed he desires to remain active in the, on a political level for the next uh, three years and maybe even consider a run, what is his best course of action to stay uh, in the public eye? And uh, how does he reconcile his actions of the last uh, six weeks with, uh, with the future? I think he will argue indefinitely that the election was stolen, that he was standing up for the, the power of the people I and mean, that he, I don't think he has, I, I just, I, I give him enough credit to think he actually believes this. And I think people around him know better and didn't exercise better judgment, but I think he actually believes a lot of this himself. He, he is a man that has been prone to conspiracy thinking since he was in his thirties. If you go back and watch some of his TV appearances in the 1980s, he engages in conspiracy theorizing then it's just the kind of person he is. So I think the way he, uh, preserves himself is probably to aim his messaging through either an official Trump TV, like taking over one of the existing TV networks and converting it into an explicit Trump TV kind of network, or more maybe more likely a sort of an implicit takeover of one of those channels with lots of Trumpy people. Uh, and I think he keeps aiming the same kind of language to them. It's not again, it's not a majority. It's not a majority of Republicans, but it's a substantial number of people who will follow him for years, and to be blunt and cynical about it, they will buy merchandise that he sells, they will watch the channel that he's on and therefore provide uh, advertising revenue for that channel. Uh, they will be essentially a way that he uh, strengthens or papers over his financial problems. I think his political future and his financial future are intertwined in complex ways, but I think he probably believes that his financial and personal future relies on maintaining this base of supporters who would not only like him or even vote for him again, but will buy the stuff that he hawks. What do you perceive as the outcome of the impeachment uh, trial? Not really persuaded enough Republicans will come over to remove him. Uh, some have argued that it is silly to do an impeachment trial after someone is out of office. It's certainly not something we're familiar with, with the very few presidential impeachments we've had. It's actually not silly. It's probably what the founders intended uh, back in the when they were writing the Constitution and they were borrowing this impeachment idea from the states. State constitutions, it was very obvious that governors were, were intended to be impeached often after they left office. It was not simply to remove them. It was to impeach their records and preclude them from serving again. That's actually consistent with the original intent. But I think most Americans don't think it makes any sense even if they dislike Trump, they're probably not sure once he's gone, then why are you going to convict him and remove him because he's already been removed? So I'm just not sure that many Republicans who are even Trump critics or Trump skeptics or sort of trying to rethink themselves as part of a future party. I don't think that they think they can sell an impeachment conviction to their voters. So I'm just not persuaded that you'll get to that threshold. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans will say something like, there's no point in impeaching and convicting him because he's already been removed. But I, I highly criticize this action or that statement. I, I think they will try to find a way to implicitly censure him without removing and forbidding him from from uh, 
serving in office in the future, which is really the only practical effect of convicting him at this point. Of course, this, this is not the only legal problem he has. He has numerous other uh, legal matters that he's going to have to attend to. And of course, his business enterprises uh, seem to be facing a lot of financial issues that are going to take an awful lot of attention uh, as well. And, you know, it, people want to make this into a political matter. And I, again, I'm, it's obvious I'm no Trump fan, but actually lots of businesses that are engaged in like leisure and recreation, hospitality industry, they're all reeling. So it isn't just the Trump organization. Remember that most of Trump organization's revenue, I think, is from uh, golf courses and resorts and stuff like that. And they're they're just they're all hurting because of COVID. So even if he wasn't the president, he hadn't been gone into politics, he might still have a lot of financial problems right now. But if you add to that the reputational hits he's taken and the effects that's had on his business relationships, yeah, he's got a lot of trouble. Well, it's enough to keep somebody busy, and uh, and of course the. Uh the outcome is that there's going to be an awful lot of lawyers that send an awful lot of bills. Now, whether those bills get paid is, <laughs> is, another, is another matter, as Rudy has probably found out by now. I'm afraid so. This is John Hood. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation, and we're talking about the outcome of the transition of our government. And uh, we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers. And we want to turn now to... Uh, the, uh, the future of North Carolina politics, and we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school. But I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Now once again with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation. Uh, used to be a, a frequent guest on the North Carolina Spin, Tom Campbell's program, which ended its long run. Uh, uh, during uh, the Christmas season, uh, after I don't know how many years, a long 22 time. 22 years. 22 years. It was a great program. And, uh, of course, Tom has also been a guest on our program from time to time, and we hope to have him on uh, more often now that he is uh, free of those responsibilities. Well, John, we, let's turn to North Carolina politics now. And uh, uh, we have several interesting things that are going to happen in North Carolina over the next uh, uh, year. One is, of course, the census is probably going to allocate North Carolina an additional congressional district. 
And that means we will go through the process of redistricting the congressional districts one more time. Uh, that could change some things. And I want to get your views on that. And then also uh, we have a key uh, senatorial race coming up. Richard Burr has announced that he is leaving his seat in 2022 after a long run. And uh, that could uh, be an interesting time for there to be a race uh, for that seat. And uh, I want to get your perspective on that. So let's, let's first turn to that first question I ask. Uh, what what will be the outcome of the redistricting and the possible addition of a 14th congressional district in North Carolina? Well, remember, we'll be redistricting congressional and legislative districts uh, in 2021. Uh, there won't be a formal change in how redistricting is done, but there's already been some reforms that have occurred through litigation to the extent that the maps will probably be drawn uh, less aggressively than Democrats or Republicans have drawn them in, in the past uh, sort of number one years of a decade. 2011, the Republicans uh, drew the maps to favor their party. In previous years, in, in 1991 and 2001, the, the Democrats were aggressive in favoring their party. I don't think there'll be as much of that redrawing these congressional and legislative maps. There'll be some. And I think what will happen inevitably is because of population flows, the districts in counties like Mecklenburg and Wake will shrink in physical size. In other words, there will be more districts in urban counties and, and around urban areas. The rural districts will grow in size to capture enough people to stay the right number. Um, in a way, it becomes harder and harder to, to do anything really interesting in rural areas, even if you want to, because you have to respect county lines as much as possible in North Carolina. So I think that if gerrymandering is still aggressively done, despite the recent lit, lit, uh, litigation-related reforms, it'll happen in these urban counties. And it probably won't happen without litigation. And so I think the Republicans know that they don't have the free hand they thought they used to, to have. So... All, all in all, I think that the congressional map will be such that most of the incumbents will probably be okay. That's usually the way maps are drawn. However, I'm not sure all the incumbents will run in 2022. There are some older members who may decide because their map has changed again or whatever that it's time to retire. So there may be a lot of opportunities for Democrats and Republicans to move up the ladder, so to speak, politically and run for Congress, either the new 14th district or an open seat. Then we got the Senate race. And of course, some of the members of Congress might run for the U.S. Senate seat, though what I've heard more frequently is something, you know, for example, Mark Walker, who is no longer a member of Congress, who's a former member of Congress, has already announced he's running for the Republican nomination for that seat. Pat McCrory, the former governor, former Charlotte mayor, may be running for that Senate nomination. Uh, on the Democratic side, uh, a couple of the people who were talked about or ran last time, like Jeff Jackson, the state senator from Mecklenburg, and, and uh, Erica Smith, the former state senator from the eastern part of the state, uh, they may run. Uh, some think Cal Cunningham, the nominee this, this past year, will run again. I doubt that very seriously. And then there's also a rumor that Roy Cooper may decide to run for U.S. Senate. Um, he would only have two years left of his gubernatorial term if he were to win. He would be giving up the seat, though, to a Republican governor. Mark Robinson would become the or the current lieutenant governor, would become governor. And also, 
I just don't think that Roy Cooper and his wife want to live and work in Washington. So I don't really put a lot of stock in that rumor. But if it were to happen, that would certainly be very significant in North Carolina uh, because it would flip the, the governor's seat to, to a Republican, which is one reason why I suspect it probably is not going to happen. But I think it's a very competitive race. It will be one of the most expensive races in 2022, one of the most expensive races in, in, in American history, just like 2020s race between Tillis and Cunningham was the most expensive. John, I know you have looked ahead at the Senate seats that will be up in uh, 2022. Is there a possibility or what is the likelihood that the Democrats will re retain control? Um, of course, we don't know the issues uh, two years out, but likely uh, in an off-year election, some of the reactions of the actions of the current, uh, the new administration will be uh, up for uh, second guessing and so forth by the electorate. Uh, so what is the outlook nationally for the Senate in 2022? History would tell us that Republicans who only have to gain a net of one seat to have a majority in the U.S. Senate, that, that Republicans would be more likely to win just because typically an off-year election goes against the president's party. Yeah. Doesn't always happen. Didn't happen in 2002 with President Bush, but that was arguably during wartime. Some argue, look, uh, the COVID-19 crisis, which will still be plaguing us, uh, at least economically in 2022, uh, will be sort of like wartime. And maybe the Trump effect on the Republican Party will still be lingering to such a degree that Biden will beat the odds and the Democrats will gain seats. It is certainly the case there are more Republican seats at risk in 2022 than Democratic seats. The map is not really favorable to the Republicans. All that having been said, I suspect the Republicans have to be at least modestly favored to retake the Senate in 2022. But, you know, we just mentioned this, but a lot of this, that this road runs through North Carolina. Yes. Democrats just won two seats in a similar state, Georgia, and they almost won. I mean, Cal Cunningham, you know, was only a little behind Tillis this year, this past cycle. So I think North Carolina is absolutely a critical state in this story. Again. John, as uh, we enter this uh, next four years, people are going to begin lining up for uh, running for governor, as Roy Cooper will, of course, only serve one more term, the, the remaining part of his term now. Uh, who do you see as the candidates that are beginning to focus on that possible race, uh, even though it's four years out on both sides, Republican you know, and Democrat? Seen, I mean, I, honestly, that's an excellent question, because I think that there hasn't been as much jockeying for position for the governor's race as there might have been in past years. Uh, this happened right after 1996 when Governor Hunt, Jim Hunt, was elected to his fourth term. Everybody knew he had to go in 2020, or excuse me, in, in 2000. And there was already jockeying for position at that time on the Democratic side uh, between the lieutenant governor, Dennis Wicker, and the attorney general, Mike Easley. And they basically sort of sparred for four years. <laughs> Something similar happened after the reelection of uh, Jim Martin in 1988. So, so we see this kind of thing with two-term governors that you immediately see the primaries launch. I haven't really seen that this year. I think partly because people are distracted by COVID and the recession and Trump and, you know, sort of the national story. But I also think the issue here, Don, is that open Senate seat. Uh, that is more immediate. That is focusing the mind of people who might want to run for statewide office. 
And if and when it becomes clear either that someone's not going to be the nominee or they, we get the election past us, then I think we'll get a clear sense of what that field is. I think it is very likely that Josh Stein, the current Democratic attorney general, would be a gubernatorial candidate. I'd be surprised if he wasn't. Um, on the Republican side, would, for example, Pat McCrory seek to come back, uh, whether he runs for Senate or not? I, I don't think so, but, you know, maybe. Um, and Mark Robinson, who's the lieutenant governor, would he immediately start essentially campaigning to be the gubernatorial nominee in 2024? I, that's possible, but I don't see that happening anytime soon because he's just now he's just new to politics. He's just been elected to his first job. Uh, so I don't, I don't have a good answer for you other than I'd be surprised if the, if the Senate or House leader, if Tim Moore or Phil Berger, uh, who are leaders of the legislature, I'd be surprised if they were angling to run for governor. I'm not sure that would be in their agenda, but uh, we'll see. Well, it's going to be interesting. And, uh, John, one of the things that is interesting is the daily newspaper's influence on our lives in North Carolina and across the country, for that matter, continues to diminish. Uh, it is harder for up-and-coming politicians to build a name or to build any recognition because they're not in the news very often because of course television news uh, basically is rapes, robberies, murders, and crime. And uh, uh, so there's not a lot of platform for candidates to, to use to build name recognition as it has been in the past. I think you're right about that. I think the, t the, the uh, your observations are, are right about TV and about newspapers, also radio, Don, your own area. There are fewer local shows around the state, around the country than there used to be because we tend to be focused more on national subjects and national personalities. And so the, a lot of the traditional ways that people campaigned and sort of got their word out there are not available. Um, but they got other ways, including online ways. I think, by the way, this argues that members of Congress who can still get national attention but be from a state might be starting to be an even more prominent source of statewide candidates in the future because they can get some media coverage that state officials cannot. Well, it's certainly an interesting time. And, uh, of course, you know, one of the things that you, we, uh, you touched on is most of the uh, media outlets have become so polarized that uh, they – uh, don't offer uh, an opportunity for new faces as much as they uh, bring up the uh, polarization of the two political parties. So that's an interesting thing. Well, I've left myself with not enough time to start a new topic, so I'm just simply going to say that our guest is John Hood. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation, and we'll come back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers, and we will do that right after we take time out for these messages. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school and I didn't do it. 10 years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. 
find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time, as in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit adoptuskids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. He has been a frequent guest on our program for many, many times. Uh, And uh, we uh, purposely asked John to come on today because we wanted to get his perspective on what not only has happened during the last month, which has been a very interesting month, to say the least, but also the, the future of where our government is going, both nationally and locally. And of course, uh, we've touched on the COVID-19 situation and how important that is to returning to some sense of being more normal in our uh, lifestyle. Uh, but uh, John, this is also uh, a, a real economic situation because we are being forced in to uh, increasing the federal debt and uh, by uh, supporting a lot of issues that help put the economy back to order. Are you worried about the uh, increase in the federal debt? Oh yes, but I've been worried about it for years. Uh, I've been I've I've, write, I've been writing a syndicated newspaper column uh, since 1986. Runs in dozens of papers in the state, and on several occasions, on many occasions. During the past, uh, actually, 12 years, during the Obama years and then the Trump years, I would rail about how we were raising the debt load and we're increasing debt. And soon it would be the, the, the share of national debt held by the public would approach 100 percent of the gross domestic product. People said, ah, it's not going to happen or that's not important. That's where we are now. I just looked at the numbers today. Public held debt, federal debt, is about 100 percent of GDP. Uh, we look at other countries where the debt gets bigger than the economy. You start thinking about defaults and poor, poor management and horrible futures and so forth. I think that both parties uh, bear blame for this, of course. Neither, neither president really cared about constraining spending. Uh, the Trump people came in. They, they did a big tax cut. And I'm in favor of tax cuts, but you have to, you have to offset the fiscal impact, at least a fair amount of it, by reduce spending, which they didn't do. So we ran trillion dollar deficits under Obama for some years. We run trillion dollar deficits every year, uh, almost every year under Trump. We're going to run massive deficits this year, uh, next year. Uh, this is this is completely irresponsible and it is completely unsustainable. Eventually, when you borrow money, you have to pay it back, even if the interest rate is low. You have to pay it back. It's not free money. And I just don't see any seriousness by politicians of either party to do anything substantially about this. To my conservative friends, I will say, since there was no spending restraint, really, at the federal level, those tax cuts you like are all temporary. They they can't stick because the federal government's going to have to raise taxes. And to my progressive friends, I would say, stop talking about the defense budget and wasting government and a few other things and thinking you're serious unless you are willing to constrain the growth of Social Security, Medicare, and, and, and Medicaid, 
you are not a serious person. You're, you're not really serious about balancing the budget. You can't do it just by raising taxes on billionaires. They don't, they have a lot of money, but not enough <laughs> or even millionaires. So you're going to, you, you are for a big tax increase. If you're a Republican and you don't want to cut spending and you're for a big tax increase, if you're a Democrat and you don't want to cut spending, it's just the way it is. Say, so, you know, there's several other interesting things going on now because savings of individuals is at an all time high. That's one interesting thing. Get yes. your comments on that. The second thing is, uh, as our infrastructure is beginning to run down, uh, this is a this is a wonderful time for interest rates to be low because we can uh, put a lot of people back to work by working on our infrastructure, uh, which is uh, there are many many needs all across not only North Carolina but across the country. So uh, I spent a lot of my early career working on writing books about saving and investment and how public policy discourages it. Uh, naturally, I sort of like the idea that we have become more of a nation of savers than we used to. But there's a difference between saving and investing. Saving is just not spending something. And lots of people have built up bank accounts. They're worried. They're properly concerned about COVID and all that. But investments where the problem is is that we just don't have enough productive investment occurring in our economy to build new opportunities, new jobs, new products, new innovations. And we have fewer startup business startups today than we usually have in American history. So we're, we're not getting the entrepreneurs starting new companies. So risk taking is not popular. Investing effectively uh, is no longer a priority. There's a lot of just focused on current consumption. If we borrow money, even at low interest rates, in order to pay people Social Security benefits or pay Medicare bills, that's not investment. Uh, it, it's, it doesn't build the productive capacity of our economy in the future. You want to borrow to invest, not to spend on current needs. And so you're right. We should be borrowing some money to invest in public assets like highways and so forth. I agree with that. Unfortunately, a lot of our borrowing capacity is being soaked up just papering over deficits in current operations. And that's if a business did that, they'd go under. Governments can't really go under, but they certainly can drag everything else down as they are fiscally uh, irresponsible. So I, I think this is a, a horrible turn of events for which there is not an obvious political constituency to solve it. I'm not sure that the Biden team thinks it's very important. The Trump team, frankly, did not think it was very important. I wish somebody would. <laughs> well, uh, you know, this is that that's why you're a conservative. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, but uh, you know, the interesting thing uh, that I always find out about you, John, is you always look at both sides of each issue. And that's, uh, that's what we would like to see in all of our uh, views and opinions of what we need to do as a country and as a state is look at both sides of each issue and come to a, uh, some sort of a compromise decision of balancing the good with the bad, because it is a matter of balancing things. So um, uh, the federal government, of course, is looking for ways to get the economy back. Uh, it's all sort of hinging on the um, COVID-19 situation. What do you see as uh, the role of the federal government in getting our economy rolling again? Honestly, I think the, it should just focus like a laser beam on getting the vaccines produced and distributed to the networks that can put them put shots in arms. Uh, I think most of everything else that people want the federal government to do is probably either unwise or unnecessary. The, 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 the injury here is the pandemic itself and the resulting economic dislocations. 
you can't paper it over very well. I mean, we, we can't just go spend even more uh, borrowed money to throw money around. This is not a long-term plan. The, the plan should be simply to get the pandemic suppressed so that normal business activity, normal investment activity can, can return. That's it. And as far as state and local governments are concerned, frankly, the most important thing they could do is figure out how to get schools open because the schools being closed and lots of kids being home is not only an educational problem, it's part of the overhang on the economy. There are people who can't do their jobs. They've lost their jobs. They've lost hours at their jobs because they have to take care of kids at home and try maybe to help them learn something online. So I think focus on suppressing the virus through immunization and other means and focus on opening the schools. I, I think that all those two things together will go a long way to get us back on track. So, John, uh, you've got about a minute here to tell me what we are actually about 40 seconds to tell me what we should expect to happen next week. <laughs> Not nearly as interesting a set of events as what has happened in the past several weeks. I do think, as I said at the top of the show, Don, that Biden's goal of sort of tamping down emotions and calming things down, he's going to be a progressive left sort of president. I'm not going to like that. But I think that his approach to tamping things down is the right one. It's what the country needs at the moment. A breath. Take a breath. Sit back. Take a breath. Well, and I think uh, almost everybody would welcome that uh, on both sides of the aisle because uh, things have uh, been uh, on the front burner. Uh, too many things have been on the front burner for a long, too, uh, for way too long. Yeah. John, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, as I said, a frequent guest on their program, and we'll look forward to having him back on again soon. Program has been produced by Jason Kong, and if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or listen to the segments that you might have missed, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. As I said, we'll have another interesting guest next week, same time, same group of stations. So the next week, same time, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.